Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Now, Lib Dems love by-elections. Lib Dems love winning by-elections. And Lib Dems love getting excited after by-elections. So to help us all calibrate our levels of excitement after Sarah Green's victory in Cheshire and Amersham, it's lovely to welcome back to the show Paula Surridge, Senior Lecturer at Bristol University and an expert in how values are driving political choices in modern Britain. Hello again, Paula. Hi, Mark. It's great to be with you again. So how overexcited should I be? How big a deal is the result of the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, do you reckon? I think you can afford to be excited for a little while, at least. <laughs> That's um, kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there are, <clears throat> there are kind of two... There are two ways of looking at it that might one one of which might temper the excitement and one of which might lead you to direct the excitement elsewhere, perhaps mm. um, in the next in the next time there's an election. So the first is the kind of warning you have to give that a government with a large majority in an in a by-election, voters feel like it's a bit of a free hit. You know, they can they can afford to give the government a bloody nose risk-free they're not going to lose their majority there's no close votes coming up um so that's i think that's the context in which you have to start from but the scale of the victory i think and the fact that it happened in this particular type of constituency gives perhaps um a bit more cause for excitement so the the one of the things i think we need to look at with by-elections is not just is not just who wins but also whether or not it reveals any underlying trends that are moving up. Some of the by-elections that we've seen in, in Parliament since 2010 have done that. They've, they've not necessarily shown that that particular seat has turned one way or the other, but it reveals those kind of underlying um, trends that are happening. And I think in that sense, Cheshire and Amersham gives us a clue that maybe um, some of those Conservative Remain voters that proved quite sticky in 2019 might be a bit easier to to move across um, in a new political context. And I guess that leads neatly to my favourite question at the moment, which is whether the 2019 election result for the Lib Dems is going to end up looking like the 2017 result for the Tories, by which I mean both cases, Tories in 2017, Lib Dems in 2019, went into the election with hopes that were horribly dashed. Both parties had really bad election results. But for the Tories, when they then triumphed in 2019, that political realignment, you can see the seeds of it in 2017. The Tories did actually quite well in Northern England in 2017. They did badly in all sorts of other ways, disastrous campaign and so on. But you can see the the political map beginning to reshift. And I do wonder, I hope, I guess, you, and you, you need to throw a bucket of cold water over me if you think this is completely wrong, but I, I do wonder if there's a similar thing about the Lib Dems in 2019. Cheshire and Amersham, for example, the party was second for many, many years, fallen to third place in 2017, moved back to second in 2019. And that moving back to second in 2019 is part of the story as to why Sarah Green is now an MP. And there are lots of other seats where you can see that shift to the Lib Dems in places. I think they're quite demographically similar. So perhaps, as you say, what we saw the first signs of in 2019 is going to be, as Jeshua Mamishim shows, what sets up quite a promising territory for the Lib Dems at the next election. I think that's definitely possible. And what, what you say there about the 2017 election, you know, we sometimes say, I think, 
Theresa May didn't perhaps get enough credit for how much damage she did to the Red Wall mm. without winning any seats. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps actually, yes, you can see that in the 2019 results for the Lib Dems. There's a whole host of places now where going into the 2019 election, one of the issues was that for, for voters that didn't want a Conservative MP, who was really in second place in a constituency was not always straightforward to work out. And, and that would have been the case in Cheshire and Amersham as well. So going into the 2023-2024 election, the, the Lib Dems have got a lot more places where they can very clearly say they are the party in second place, they are the, the main challengers to the Conservatives, and that's because of the um, improvement in results in these places in, in 2019. And so how typical do you think Cheshire and Amersham is of other bits of the country. Certainly one thing that both myself and quite a few others actually sort of noticed when campaigning fairly early on in the by-election was it just felt like places that we've done really well in, in other bits of the country. And there is this, the constituency understandably has a reputation for being very affluent. And they're, I mean, there are definitely houses there that have, you know, cars outside with which you could buy another house you know so some real real areas of affluence but it's not all like that by any means there's quite a large uh, ethnic minority community up and down Burke Hampstead Road which I seem to spend a lot of polling day <laughs> calling on for example Sarah made a visit to the local mosque during the campaign and so on so it's a bit of a more mix and it did have a feel in many parts of sort of like quite familiar Lib Dem territory that is present in many other bits of the country but that's a very impressionistic feel when you've been looking more at the the data is, is what's your impression of how much we can really read other bits of the country into Cheshire and Amersham? So I find now that it's useful to think about different sort of clusters of seats. Lots of people have started doing this geographically and I don't find that hugely helpful. I prefer to do it on kind of demographics mm -hmm. rather, rather than geography. Um, Chesham and Amersham fell into a, a category that I called affluent remain when I was working on a typology um, about this time last year, maybe a little bit longer ago than that, um, which were seats that had voted remain, were tended to be more educated and were more affluent um, than average. So I, I defined that by looking at the um, percentage of households that had no deprivation markers, so on a, on a not sort of naught to four. Um, and I identified 27 seats in that category. Um, and obviously, we could argue a little bit about exactly where you should draw borderlines. <laughs> it might be slightly more. Of those 27, though, the Conservatives hold 17. Labour hold five, the Lib Dems hold five. Um, and I think it's reasonable to think of Chesham and Amersham as typical of that group of seats. Mm. So if you're looking for a group of seats that therefore might be um, more within reach for the Lib Dems, um, that's the kind of seats that I would be looking for. But they're not typical, obviously, nationwide. Um, if you were to compare with Hartlepool, for example, <laughs> chalk and cheese in, in all of these measures, whether you're talking about leave remain or you're talking about percentage with a degree, house prices, all those kinds of things. So I think it's typical of a kind of seat that the Lib Dems can win, many of which the Lib Dems, I think, hoped to win in 2019. Cheltenham, for example, is on that list, um, and many of which I expect will be very high up um, a target list for whenever the next election comes around. And that 17 is, I guess, a large enough number to plausibly 
set up getting the Lib Dems back into 20 plus MP territory. And depending on what your yardstick is, I mean, getting into the 20s is not a bad yardstick in a way. If you look at the size of Lib Dems or predecessor parties in things like the 90s, uh, the 87 and 92 parliaments and so on. That's that's yeah, a, an obvious staging post to aim for. But of course, that's still a long way short of the party's best results. So I guess the next question is how different are the next sort of tier out or the or the most adjacent other category from from affluent remainers so i would say the next category down from the affluent remainers are what i call the educated seats so the seats with very high proportions of people with degrees or higher than average can i just say i can you can really tell that you're a political scientist rather than a politician in terms of daring call a subset of the country the educated seats <laughs> <laughs> It's a data. It's a data measure. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> An empirical measure. And I identified thirty-nine seats that have this um, relatively high proportion of graduates. Of those, most of them are held by Labour, but there are ten Conservative seats still within that as well, which I think also then start to look like potential targets um, for for the Lib Dems. I did some analysis before twenty nineteen. Um, showing that Lib Dems tended to do well in places with lots of graduates, but particularly yeah. actually kind of university towns. Um, I haven't got the exact number in my head, but the Lib Dems do particularly well amongst those with postgraduate degrees. Mm. So if you go to a university town, you kind of go to that level of, of um, qualification you start to see places where the Lib Dems can do particularly well. Yeah, I can't remember if it was your work or someone else's that I remember reading a few years back, which pointed out that although the Lib Dems tended to do quite well in university towns, one shouldn't from that assume that it's the student vote that is particularly propelling it. It's it's the wider sort of university ecosystem, as it were. So people are working at the university or people who have graduated but have decided to stay in that place and so on. But I And I, I guess there's a... There's a point that Stephen Bush, I think it is, made on Twitter uh, earlier today as we're recording, where he said that Keir Starmer gives the impression that somehow it is more worthy and, and more important for Labour to win in somewhere like Hartlepool than somewhere like Worthing. And the part of the problem for the Labour Party is they seem to place uh, too little value in some of the areas where actually they have had decent election results, in, you know, for example, this May. And I think there's a version of that that very much is a question for the Lib Dems, for my party as well, which is the dangers of just picturing yourself as a party for affluent people, homeowners with, you know, two cars outside and three degrees, you know, between the household, that that's a very distinctive niche who definitely should be represented in politics, but is probably not the niche that is most in need of or suffers most from you know, poor poor public services and 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 the like and so i think you know there's a dilemma for the lib dems about how do you avoid being pigeonholed as just a particularly given that we we're a party that wants to change things how do we avoid being pigeonholed as just a comfortable party for people who are quite happy with generally how things are at the moment brexit aside um but but the the educated seats obviously and affluent remainer seats are two potential you know, potential bits of that coalition and you know, Lib Dems can obviously look to add in other bits as well that helps deal with that, not just for the, the well-off, generally happy with state of things people. Are there any other groups that you would particularly pull out as if the Lib Dems therefore are looking for a slightly broader appeal 
that, that in that, that set of categories would be relevant? I suppose within the set of categories I have, the next group of seats that might be winnable, I had a kind of rural set of seats as mm. well, which, which might be um, might be winnable. But I do think that a dose of realism is helpful, mm. <laughs> actually, and trying not to overbroaden yeah. some of these categories is quite useful and thinking about how you can um, you know, being able to broaden a coalition, you have to get a bigger, a bigger slice of the pie first, and then you get mm. more questions, more, more um, TV time, more coverage and all those things. So I know I'm, I'm telling you things you already know only too well. <laughs> um, but I think actually a strategy of focusing in on some of the places that look really winnable, rather than trying to be all things to all people might actually be a better strategy yeah. at the moment. And I think that's one of the things that is quite reassuring about the May local election results for the Lib Dems in England. It's obviously a bit of a mixed picture overall, oh, just you know, net gains, but only just. Like better to be up than down, but obviously it wasn't up by a lot. But within that, you look at the progress that my colleagues made in places like Sunderland and Barnsley. Uh, you know, they're not particularly affluent communities yeah if you look at the overall sort of wealth distribution across the country certainly not remain leaning areas that there is a there are some really keen enthusiastic new te teams of people building up in areas that do have a much broader demographic mix and even if winning a parliamentary seat in Sunderland may be a little bit down the track at the moment I mean who knows how Labour might melt down I guess if they lose battles then but I, I don't think colleagues in Sunderland would be too put out if I said that that looks a slightly longer shot to get a Lib Dem MP in Sunderland uh, at, at the moment. Um, but the fact that we've got growing local government strength, but also therefore very vocal people internally within the party who take part in things like our policy making processes and the like, I think it's quite a helpful safeguard about against just becoming the, the small niche party for affluent, comfortable people. Um, and, and the point about rural seats obviously gets us slightly back to areas of traditional, you know, Lib Dem strength. And I think the thought that's probably running through some listeners' minds even now already in response to that is, but aren't those places more leave voting? And can the Lib Dems really, A, successfully appeal to leave voters, but B, given your point, and it's one I've made in different forms as well often enough in the past, given your point about the value of having some coherence to your base of support, actually how much do we really want to reach out into those? So what's, yeah, what's your take on Brexit and particularly what that means for rural seats? So I don't, I don't think we know quite yet how Brexit identities are going to respond because it feels to me like politics was kind of paused by the pandemic in, in, in March 2020 so, and we haven't quite come out of it enough for people to start to engage with Brexit as a process in the way they perhaps would have done if we hadn't had the pandemic. So I think there's still a lot that's quite open in terms of how they might evolve, but certainly we're starting to see little pockets of, not, not resistance to Brexit necessarily, not people that want to rejoin by any stretch of the imagination, but people who are not necessarily happy with some of the terms of deals being struck. So in rural areas, 
you've got um, smallholders who are not particularly happy with the deal with Australia, for example. So there are start to be pockets of um, dissatisfaction with Brexit that perhaps um, another party can, can start to work with a little bit. Um, but it's never going to be, I don't think, a kind of movement for rejoin. And I think that's where the Lib Dems are always going to find themselves a little bit drawn between those two, those two positions. And certainly Alastair Carmichael, the Lib Dem MP in Orkney and Shetland, has, for example, been very vocal about what it means for the fishing industry in particular in his constituency, the terms of agreements that have, are being reached. I, it, it's notable that in Cheshire and Amersham, they rejoin the EU party who basically want to undo Brexit as soon as possible. They got 101 votes, so just into treble figures, but a very, very low share of uh, the vote when you take into account the Lib Dem majority was 8,000 odd to get 101 votes but and I'm not quite sure fully what to make of the responses I got from voters on the doorstep because I can't recall anyone directly mentioning being unhappy with Brexit as a reason for voting Lib Dem but there did seem to be a sense of Remainers who although they didn't want a party campaigning for rejoin tomorrow still bear a, there's still a significant political fallout that they feel like the Tory party isn't really for the likes of them and their communities anymore and therefore that sets them up to be willing to be unhappy about other things and therefore although it's not primarily regret over Brexit that's driving their vote it is that which is setting up the possibility there was also a small number of people and this may just be the anecdote that's the equivalent of the tiny cross tabs that you get in polls, which you shouldn't really read anything to. But I wasn't the only person who came across somebody who said, well, now that Brexit's over and done with, I can maybe think about voting for you once once again. I mean, there's no real sign of that in the national polls. So one should be very cautious <laughs> about reading too much into that trend. But, but it does feel like the Brexit identities are really going to persist, even if whether or not we should rejoin tomorrow isn't yet on the political agenda again yeah so i think they've given people labels for us for a broader set of values that aren't specifically um about brexit but it's interesting that you should say that that kind of brexit um dissatis dissatisfaction sort of then reveals a broader sets of dissatisfaction because i think that might also be a mirror of what happened to labor in the north of england that that mm -hmm. kind of falling out, if you like, on that kind of Brexit divide, then unleashes all sorts of other unhappiness um, for, for, the, for those voters. The other thing I was going to say was building on your anecdote with, with survey data to, 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 to give it some branches, um, is that the, the Conservative Remain vote, which I would imagine was quite strong in, in um, Chesham and Amersham, was never as passionate about Remain as the rest of the Remain vote that desperately wanted a second referendum or to, or to kind of mm. cancel Article 50 altogether. And so in that sense, at the time of the 2019 election, a lot of those voters were just really quite happy to get out with a deal. And then, it, so, so they were never passionate Europeans. They were pragmatic Europeans <laughs> is how I sometimes think of them. And they were and probably passionate and passionately anti-Jeremy Corbyn. So Brexit with a deal, but not Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister overall was a decent package in their eyes, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And they were far more um, 
disliking of Corbyn than they were supporting of Remain. So if you kind of put them in a, in a, if you can imagine them in a kind of space defined by those two things. So I think that was an interesting factor that actually they may well feel more able to vote Lib Dem now that there's no sort of second referendum on the table. They don't feel like they're voting for that. They're, they're vote, they're, they, they can vote for an improvement to the deal rather than for Brexit to be undone completely. And, and although Keir Starmer is struggling in various ways, he's definitely not Jeremy Corbyn. There was, yeah, <clears throat> you know, I think myself and others, particularly others, spent huge amounts of time talking to uh, Labour voters in Cheshire and Amersham. And I don't think there was any sense of, oh, I really love Keir Starmer, so I'm, you know, really want to vote for him as a sign of, you know, support for him or, or endorsement for him. But, uh, and so in that sense, that made the Labour vote softer, which was actually good, easier to win tactical votes. But also amongst Tories, there wasn't that sense of a fear of Keir Starmer, that therefore you've got to keep the Tories strong, etc. That I think for, from purely the Liberal Democrat self-interest, immediate short-term self-interest, Keir Starmer's popularity at the moment is probably exactly in that sweet spot of not, not scaring Tories, not enthusing potential Labour tactical voters. But overall, obviously, what that means for the next general election is still very hard to tell, especially as we're having this discussion before we know the result in Batley and Spen. I think there will be many pieces written about a pair of by-elections, probably, won't there, when we've got to Batley and Spen to go alongside Cheshire and Amersham. Well, I, I'm planning on writing one about the trio of by-elections. Oh, and Hartlepool, of course. Bring yeah. Hartlepool into that one as well. Um, to kind of well I think Hartlepool is the least interesting of the three. So, for example, the thing that really puzzled me about Labour's reaction to Hartlepool was there was a very credible line they could have said, which was, our loss in Hartlepool is basically Jeremy Corbyn's parting gift to the party, because it was only a quirk of how well the Brexit party did in 2019 that meant we didn't lose it to the Tories in 2019. And now, without that strength, the Brexit party support, yeah, the result has, as it were, caught up on where lots of other places already were in 2019. So it wasn't, it, it really, to me, looks like it's the, the epilogue of the 2019 general election, rather than something new. I think Cheshire and Amersham is, is definitely about new politics in this parliament. Uh, Batley and Spen will give us a sense of how much Labour has really moved on from 2019, because there isn't any of that cover story that there should have been had they, I, I just don't understand why they didn't try to tell it, you know, but they should have told about Hartlepool. And um, so, yeah, so I, I, I think I'm sure your piece on the trio of by-elections will be, all elements of it will be fascinating, but I suspect I will find the second and third sections a bit more interesting than the first. I think the first part will say roughly what you just said. I've said oh, right. right right from the start that I didn't think the Hartlepool by-election gave us any new information that we didn't already have in 2019. Um, it, it was just a continuation of what we'd seen in 2019. Yeah. Although maybe in fairness to how some in Labour reacted, there is a bit of, you may know something's true, and it only the really emotionally gets into your gut when it is brought home in an election result in and 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 therefore, actually, a lot of what we've been saying about Chesham and Amersham, we could have said a couple of weeks ago, but having a Lib Dem MP elected with an 8,000 majority gives it a degree of validation, but just a, a, a much more tangible sense of fear amongst, say, some Conservatives than it is when you're talking about it in, in theory without the 
yeah, the, the, the evidence immediately in front of you. Yeah, I think the other thing that Hartlepool perhaps did for Labour was that those that still believed it was either Brexit or Corbyn mm. and once both of those things had changed, things would sort of mm. bounce back by themselves, it showed that that wasn't, it was never as simple as that. And perhaps that's part of the explanation as well. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've, I've long wondered what stage two of the Starmer leadership is intended to be. You know, stage one, I think he performed very well. He was not Jeremy Corbyn. It wasn't the same old Labour Party. And particularly both the substance and symbolism of some of his actions over anti-Semitism, I think very powerfully reinforced that message. But it felt like he then stalled, that there wasn't a stage two. Now, one could be maybe generous and maybe one should be generous and point to coronavirus as getting in the way of stage two. I think it's very clear a stage two is needed. Um, so I think we will discover through the second half of this year whether he really does have a stage two in him. In a way that, for example, David Cameron never quite did, but he just about got away with it. You know, David Cameron, I think, was very good at understanding the Tories needed to change. He never really got to grips with what he wanted them to change to. And that was that step one was just enough to get him through 2010 because of how unpopular the government was. But Keir Starmer faced with a much more popular government. I don't think stage one is going to turn out to be enough on its own. It doesn't it doesn't look like it. And I guess we'll we're left with all those kind of what ifs, you know, what if we hadn't had the, the coronavirus pandemic, maybe actually stage one might have been enough. But that seems to have allowed the government to to build on its popularity in some respects um, and certainly in some areas. So we'll have to wait and see. I think it's going to be a, a fascinating kind of late summer conference season period um, to, to be watching out for. I, I mean, if you want a fun what if, you know, what if there hadn't been a general election in December 2019 and it was still on the books, but it had been, you know, punted a few months down the road. And then we had the coronavirus epidemic hit. If you know, Brexit had been a bit delayed and the coronavirus epidemic had hit and there hadn't yet been a, a general election. I mean, just it, it feels like one of those moments where politics could have spiralled off into so many different different directions. Sometimes when you're playing with what ifs, it's a relatively, at least in the first immediate steps of the consequences, it's a relatively straightforward binary choice. But then if if you try plotting out writing say an alternative history around that the number of options that you can think about magnify you know hugely very very quickly so that's uh we should i, I should maybe get duncan brack who's a sort of in-house Lib Dem historian as it were on on the show later in the year perhaps to talk about what if yeah. we had coronavirus before the general election and the general yeah. election are therefore most likely i guess been you know, there wouldn't have been one for quite a long period of time then. And you'd have been trying to get through lockdown measures through yeah. that House of Commons, which would have been interesting. Yeah. Um, but back to back to reality. Um, <laughs> back to the real history, right? A lot of the media coverage of the result, and particularly the Conservative candidates, just rather sour piece in the Telegraph, focuses on particular policies. Um but I think what we've touched on in this conversation so far hints that really it was a much more general sense of dissatisfaction with the government and almost one of values rather than a specific policy. Yeah, it, even things like the Eastbourne Lib Dem by-election victory you know, in 1990, which helped 
rescue the party from the depths of merger. There was a hospital, a local hospital issue that very much propelled the initial stages of that by-election uh, campaign. It, it feels like this was a less policy specific election in some ways. What was your um, what was your impression of what we should read into that, whether that's the right take and if so, what the implications are? I mean, my first my first reaction is that people that were on the ground in the constituency will have a much better feel for that than somebody watching it for a couple of hundred miles away. Um, and it will also come as no surprise to you or anyone who's heard me speak before that I don't think it's necessary about policies. I think those kind of broad value judgments are much, much more important to people. Feeling that their party is looking after people like them, whatever that means. And that's quite a soft idea. It's I don't think it's something you can measure very, very precisely in terms of survey responses. But I think that's much more how people make their minds up than very specific policy issues. Although I'd be willing to, to, very willing to listen to somebody on the ground who could say, you know, actually the policy issue kicks off that feeling and that is what, what starts it off, um, makes people feel like they're being taken for granted or, or whatever. Um, but my general take is, is this is much more about those kind of broad senses of belonging to particular groups and whether or not parties are for those groups or not um, than particular policy issues. Um, and how fundamental then do you think is that breakdown of voters in Cheshire and Amersham, so many of them no longer feeling the Tories are, are their sort of people in that sense anymore? Um, because in one sense, that sort of breakdown of affinity can be very profound and long-lasting but as you rightly said at the beginning this was a remarkable by-election but still it was a by-election it was only one uh, by-election so how maybe actually maybe the better way of phrasing this is how easy do you think or difficult will it be for the Tories to try to undo that damage and stitch back together again the sort of coalition of support that used to make Cheshire and Amish are a reliably conservative seat with large majority time after time. I think it is something um, broader um, that, that will be more difficult to fix, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, lots of voters didn't vote and some of those might just be stay at home Tories who, who turn out in a general election. But I think if we look at that group, because I think what Chesham tells us most of all is about what how conservative remainers are changing. Um, and if we look at that group back in 2019, lots of, for large parts of 2019, they were a group of voters who were quite undecided about how they would vote. Um, and then they kind of fell back in be behind the Conservatives um, during the 2019 campaign almost. So I think if that link is loosening, and I think it has already loosened to a certain extent, but if they're now willing to consider voting for another party that does become a much bigger headache for the conservatives and it's almost making the headache for the conservatives the same as it is for labor that actually they've got groups of voters that want different things and it's almost impossible to satisfy all of them at the same time yeah and that's perhaps the opportunity for the lib dems in the blue wall which is our now a sort of cliche of choice in that both labor and the tories have been so heavily focused on the red wall there's a question isn't there about the extent to which their pitches to the red wall are ones that actually put voters off in the blue wall 
Um, certainly, I think one of the elements in Jeshem and Amersham was a sense of the Tories are just not interested in round here anymore. And in that sense, hearing Boris Johnson talking so often about Northern England helped create and reinforce that. And that's, I think, the respect in which something like HS2, for example, played out in the by-election, that it wasn't that voters wanted to vote for somebody who would be keenest on trying to scrap HS2 tomorrow, because if they had, they would have flocked to the Greens, and actually the Green vote failed, the Greens lost their deposit. But there was a bit of a sense of, do the Tories really care about areas around here anymore? And in that context, hearing Boris Johnson talking about levelling up, talking about Northern England, just reinforces it. So do you think it's possible for the Tories to repair that damage whilst also hanging on to their red wall gains because that's obviously the hope for the Lib Dems is that Labour and the Tories are busy off fighting another political battle and that leaves quite a big space for the Lib Dems to gain seats at the next Westminster election. I think that is a it's a really interesting question and I still I, I want to just go back to me I still think politics is a little bit in pause so I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure how some of these things are going to play out. As we come out of the pandemic, it's likely that economic policy will be a bit more front and centre than Mm. perhaps it's been previously, which gives the Conservatives um, a bit of a a problem in terms of keeping on side those new Conservative voters in the North with the Conservative voters um, in in, um, Amersham. So depending on what kind of become the big political debates and issues. And I think, you know, talking about what, what's the Starmer project part two, part of that ought to be thinking about what they want those big political issues to be. What are the, what are the points to fight, to fight on? But if it becomes more economic, it makes it very difficult for the conservatives. And it's going back to that point you made before, having realized that you're out of line with your party on one set of values makes you question whether or not you're in line with them on another as well. So although the Lib Dems are picking up those Conservatives, primarily because they're a bit more socially liberal, there's then that other tension within within the economic dimension as well. And there's that big unknown of what the future issues will be. I mean, I, I remember Charles Kennedy made this point very powerfully about the 2001 general election, it must have been where he said, yeah, the issues that dominated the general election campaign were basically a world away from the issues that then dominated the 2001 to 2005 parliament. And that wasn't because any of the parties or the media were being dishonest or trying to dodge something. It was just, yeah, you do get big issues that come along, like coronavirus, which massively change the terms of political debate and make the issues that everyone's worrying about, you know, different from what otherwise people are expecting and so I think predicting I guess the the next even the next couple of years is quite difficult because it may be that the Tories are lucky there may be an issue that becomes dominant that is one that's quite amenable for red wall and blue wall joint appeal or it might be that it's an issue that makes is actually really at the heart of the differences um, and obviously, I'm simplifying hugely because there are lots of small L liberal people in the red wall and so on. But, you know, as a, as a broad as a broad brush approach. And one thing that strikes me in that respect, for example, is that even though we're making very rapid, thankful progress with vaccinations in the UK, if you look globally, especially once you get outside uh, sort of industrialised countries, 
progress is so massively patchy and you know progress is probably even too strong a word sadly to use it in the case of some country and so i can imagine it may be that a lot of politics of next year is dominated by to what extent should britain be a global good neighbor in terms of helping other countries or not and that really gets to an instinctive gut sense of value about your attitude towards foreigners um, so it may be that the issues that come up are, are, are quite helpful from a lived end perspective or it might be it might be not so i won't push you to predict what sort of issues i, I can give up. you one little snippet though that that might be of interest because one of the issues that is likely to dominate an election campaign if not the period before it is of course scottish referendum mm. And it turns out from the data that the Conservative Remainers are the least in favour of a second referendum and the least in favour of Scottish independence of the kind of different sets and permutations that you could that you could bring up. So in that sense, there's a, a, a group there that um, don't want to see a second referendum at all that is um, interesting for how that might play out depending on where Conservative policy goes. Indeed, and that's one of the things that may significantly remake English politics by the next Westminster election is is if Scotland has voted yeah has had a referendum actually one way or the other you know, whatever the outcome that will obviously be massive have a massive impact on Scottish politics but the knock-on impact on, on English and Welsh politics could be quite significant you can see how if Scotland were to vote for independence the huge boost that might give independence movements in Wales on the other hand if, if Scotland were to vote uh, against uh, independence, the what that means in terms of the likely maths of future House of Commons is again pretty significant uh, because as we've seen with the last referendum, losing a referendum is not necessarily politically bad news for the SNP in terms of winning seats at future elections, is it? Although they can't really win very many more. So, <laughs> But it does make a one-party Labour majority look very implausible doesn't it it does yeah. um so if you were advising ed davy based on everything that we've talked about what would what would you advise him to do or not do based on the by-election result i would advise him to email me for my list of affluent remain seats i think <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening ed it's okay i'll email paula <laughs> for you um, they're not all, they're not, I don't want to use this phrase, I've tried to avoid using it since Friday, but they're not all in the so-called blue wall. They're a bit more spread out than that. Um, and I think that would be my starting point for any strategy, would be to look at those seats and really think about how you can go about winning them. I will definitely email you and have a look at what overlap there is between that and the list of seats the party internally is looking at. I may not be able to reveal the answer to you this side of the general election, perhaps, but that will definitely be a really interesting comparison. Um, Any other advice you would give him? I think it's for the liberal democrats now and this is this i feel a bit bad doing this because this is a bit like the bucket of cold water that, that we start but i think that it's about looking at places that can be won and rebuilding that from that because that will then allow the kind of spillover effects to places that are perhaps a bit more difficult to get the message across in as, as a kind of first step so i think that would be really looking at the places where the demographics work um, the new demographics work yeah. for the Liberal Democrats. And you talk a little bit about kind of 
you know, Labour value in Hartlepool more than Woking. I think for the Liberal Democrats, there's a little bit of that as well, and that some of the the old heartlands almost have to be just has has to be accepted that they're going to be very difficult for this first electoral cycle, and it's a question of building up um, a bit more gradually. Sorry, that is a bit like a bucket of cold water. Well, I think it's 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 a request to us to pivot. <laughs> which I think is an important point, as you say, that the areas that look the most promising definitely have some overlap, but it's by no means complete overlap with where the party has been most successful um, in the past. And I think, you know, we do need to be mindful of the need to have broader appeal than simply to, you know, m the more affluent elements uh, of, of, of British society. And also, we need to be mindful that somewhere along the line there will probably be a Labour Prime Minister and so we need to be making sufficient progress in in some other areas so that when there is most likely at some point again a Labour government we're able to continue progressing through that uh, that electoral cycle uh, as well. Um, now obviously one of the best ways of getting things right for the future is to learn from the past and Paula you and colleagues have a book out shortly on the 2019 general election. So would you like to tell listeners how wonderful it is? And I can say that it is wonderful genuinely because I've had a sneak peek of a couple of chapters uh, and they are very good. So tell us about your amazing book, Paula. Well, I'm sure listeners will already be well aware of the series of books that it's part of. So the, the Nuffield series of, um, of election studies reviews. Um, and a new team took that over for the 2019 election, which I feel incredibly lucky to be part of. Um, so with professors Rob Ford, Tim Bale and Will Jennings, who we've been variously doing bits of different parts of the book and bringing it together. Um, it includes all the things you'll be used to from that series of books. So detailed um, insights from all the parties, um, bit of a learning curve for me doing interviews with kind of um, politicians, uh, MPs, party party staff and so on. I've been obviously uh, through my career much more focused on survey data so that was a steep learning curve and one that I had to do mostly by Zoom which I, I'm not sure if that made it steeper or shallower. I think that's a methodological question for another day and we've added some new learning curves are good. <laughs> I, I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about the phrase steep learning curve because that means you learn a lot very quickly doesn't it yes you do and I, and I certainly did learn a lot very very quickly um through the summer months last year um we've added a couple of new features most most notably there is now an analysis of the survey data of the election study data within within the book as well so something um something for everyone but perhaps a little bit more than previously for the real nerds yeah and I think that use of some of the British election survey data is really timely in a way because to wrap up it brings us back to the Chesham and Amersham result that there were a lot of journalists who were relying on what are normally for them senior and reliable sources in political parties about what do you think is happening in this by-election and who came who just got the story completely wrong until very late in the day because fundamentally the sort of source who is a good source for a whitehall policy story isn't necessarily a source who actually has any access to data about what is really happening with voters in a by-election and i think you know writ large there's definitely a degree to which political commentary i was going to say in britain but probably globally <laughs> uh you know doesn't make as much use of data to really be rooted in what voters think as it should. So excellent news that your book is doing that. And that's out later this year, is that right? 
Early October. Early October. So I will have a look to see if it's available to pre-order. And if it is, I will put some links in the show notes to that. Uh, and also to uh, Paula, your account on Twitter, which is often full of really interesting information. So people can find Paula on Twitter at P underscore Surridge, myself at Mark Pack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. Thank you so much for joining the show, Paula. And uh, listeners, do look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed. I'm also talking a bit more about the lessons from the result of Jeshim and Amisham in this month's Lib Dem Newswire newsletter. So I will include a link to that in the show notes as well. So thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thank you.